I love it when Jesus goes to church. Because when Jesus goes to church, something great always happens. Today we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. We find ourselves in Luke chapter 13. This morning I want to talk to you about a day at church with Jesus. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you're free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up, and she praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days and not the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. On this particular day, Jesus was the guest preacher at a local synagogue. Synagogues were not the same thing as the temple. There was one temple, there were many synagogues. The word synagogue literally means a house of instruction. A synagogue finds its origin in the days of the Babylonian captivity. It was then and there when the people of God were in foreign soil that they would gather around the word of God to hear it read and explained. Once they were permitted to go back to the promised land, synagogues popped up on nearly every corner. 500 years passed from the Babylonian captivity to the arrival of Jesus in the Bethlehem barn. And over those five centuries, synagogues emerged all over Israel. Historians report that in Galilee alone, in the days of Jesus, there were 250 synagogues. That number sounds quite numerous until we realize that in the city of Jerusalem, during the days of Jesus, there were 500 synagogues. Local houses of instruction where the word of God was read and explained to the people of God. It's not by accident that Jesus makes it his practice to go to church, to go to synagogue, and to preach. You realize that Jesus was bringing about a revolution that was a grassroots effort. 
So it's not uncommon, not surprising for us to read in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, that Jesus kept on preaching in synagogues throughout Judea. I can well imagine that during his three-year span of ministry, he probably every Sabbath day was in a synagogue, maybe more than one, and he would be there to preach and to teach. And whenever Jesus went to church, whenever he taught, he never taught like the other rabbis. In fact, people would conclude he speaks with such authority, he, he speaks a lot better than those stuffy, stale rabbis that we're used to. What he has to say is different. How he says it is with power and clarity. You need to know that Jesus never went to church to somehow instruct people to bolster the status quo of their religious life. Jesus never went to church to toe the company line and say hook, line, and sinker what every rabbi is supposed to say. Jesus did not go to church telling people to be more religious. No, Jesus went to church to preach the gospel. In fact, every gospel writer summarizes the preaching ministry of Jesus in this way, that Jesus went about proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That the way you receive the gospel is not by human effort, but it's through repentance, where you acknowledge your own disobedience and your sinfulness before the Lord, and you repent and turn from that, and you embrace the righteous rule of Christ in your life. For the rule of Christ is the reign of the God of the cosmos over every decision that you make in your existence. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Every time Jesus went to church, he preached. And he preached the gospel. Because Jesus knew that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus went not to tell people how to live a better life. Jesus went to raise the dead. Jesus went to church to tell dead people, get up, come follow me, and their life will be totally transformed. Jesus came not just for us to be more religious. Jesus came so that you and I could be declared righteous. For you and I have salvation, not because of human effort, but because of divine achievement. We are saved not because of our own goodness. We're saved because of his grace. We're accepted in his sight, not because of our merit, but because of his mercy. There was a prevalent theology in the first century that said, so long as you follow the rules and regulations of Judaism, you will be fine and accepted in God's kingdom. So as long as you do more good than bad, you will tip the scale in your favor and you'll be granted access into God's presence. And Jesus came to preach the gospel. You know, Jesus still goes to church. And whenever Jesus shows up in church, you know what he always preaches? He preaches the gospel. It's not a man-made religion. It is a God-given relationship. And Jesus proclaims the good news. Now, the tragedy is that in Luke's gospel, this is the last time that Jesus is portrayed in a synagogue. Luke chapter 13. 
For the remaining 11 chapters, you'll never find Jesus portrayed in the synagogue again. It's almost as if that from Luke's perspective, by and large, his own people rejected Jesus. But on this day, Jesus went to church. And he was preaching. And I dare say he was preaching the gospel. He was telling people how they can be saved, how they can be raised to a new walk of life. And that can only come through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus preached like no other rabbi. It's at this point that Luke introduces us to an anonymous woman. We don't know anything about her name, her age, or even her worship attendance record. We don't know who this woman is. We don't know why she came to church that day. We don't know if this is a first-time guest or a regular attender. What we do know is that this woman was hurting. She was in pain. Her pain was so severe that it caused her to be twisted, hunched over, unable to straighten up. In all likelihood... The bones along her spinal cord had probably ruptured. They probably, over time, fused together. Scar tissue had probably emerged around, leaving her rigid and immovable. So she was hunched over, unable to stand up straight. I am sure that she probably shuffled her way into the sanctuary that day. She was bound by pain and suffering. That pain was constant. It pulsated all throughout her back. It expanded over her shoulders, out through the ends of her fingers, pulsated even out the top of her head. She was unable to look anybody in the eyes. She would do her best to look up, but even to look up was painful. This woman just came shuffling into church that day. It was evident to everybody that she was in pain. I got to be honest with you that whenever I visualize this woman, it makes me want to stand up straight and tall. Because just to visualize her in my mind's eye, it's the imagery of suffering and agony, discomfort and pain. This woman, she would have been um, laughed at by her culture. Nobody would have given this woman the time of day. This woman would have been pointed out. Children would have snickered at her. Adults would have whispered loudly. People would have regarded her as trash, useless. Many would have said, she's getting what she deserves. Now Luke goes out of his way to tell us that this woman was suffering and it really wasn't her fault. In fact, Luke says that this is a crippled woman, and she's been crippled by a demonic spirit. Jesus later will say this woman has been bound by 18 long years by the devil himself. She's in this condition, not because she necessarily did anything wrong or necessarily deserves this suffering. Now, the reason Luke has to clarify that is because in his day, the first century, suffering was always equated to divine retribution. If you were in pain, 
If you suffered, if you were in agony, if things weren't going well, it had to be because God was getting even with you. You had done something wrong to displease the Lord, and because of your disobedience, now God was meeting out his justice upon your life, your body, your circumstances. Now, this idea was very prevalent in the first century. It was very prevalent in the Old Testament as well. Do you remember in John chapter 9, it's the disciples of Jesus who come across a blind man, and they have this mentality, and so they ask Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents that caused him to be born blind? Because if if, if nobody sinned, then this guy would not be born blind. He'd be able to see. Because he's born blind, clearly somebody messed up. Jesus, this man, or his parents? And how did Jesus respond? Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this was done so that the work of God might be displayed in this man's life. You remember the story of Job. One of the oldest characters in the Old Testament. Job suffered greatly and when his three friends showed up you know what they said you have messed up big time you better confess your secret sin because clearly only a sinful person can lose seven sons and three daughters and seven thousand sheep and three thousand camel and five hundred yoke of oxen and five hundred donkeys all in the same day what did you do job how did you mess up god's got it out for you it's a divine vendetta and you better come clean before the lord and you better confess your secret sin because you have messed up big time and that's why you've lost everything now we've read the story of job and job allows us uh, God allows us to get behind the scenes and see that Job, while he was a sinful man, he was a righteous man, and God says he had done nothing to deserve this level of punishment. When this woman showed up that day, she went into the shadows of the back row, hoping to stay in the shadows of ambiguity. I, I don't think that she wanted to be seen. For if anyone in the crowd had seen her, they would have regarded her as useless. They wouldn't have given her the time of day. They would have said, she, she's getting what she deserves. Now certainly there are times that suffering strikes us because of bad decisions, right? I mean, all of us can give testimony to that. All of us know stories of that. Some of us know it by personal experience. Sometimes bad things happen to, to us because we've just made some horrible life decisions. That happens. That's true. But many times, many people suffer just because it's part and parcel with the human condition. In the Garden of Eden, when sin was introduced into the world, it touched and tainted everything. So that because of sin, there's death and disease Natural disaster, catastrophes, agony, suffering, sickness, cancer, all sorts of pain at all types of levels. Many times, people suffer not necessarily because of something that they did wrong, not because God is out to get them, but many times people suffer 
because it's part and parcel with the human condition. That's this woman of Luke 13. She walks in and it's obvious that she is in pain. She shuffles into the sanctuary. I wonder this morning, are there any of you who shuffle into the sanctuary? Are any of you experiencing excruciating pain? Pain that could be physical, but not all pain is physical. It could be emotional pain. It could be relational pain. It could be mental pain. Undoubtedly, it's probably spiritual pain. Any of you here bent, twisted, broken, bruised, shattered, suffering, in agony, shuffling into the church? It may not be evident to other people, but it sure is evident to God. God knows how you're bent out of shape. God knows how you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders. And because of something maybe that you did, or maybe that was not your fault but done to you, maybe an experience that's left you debilitated, paralyzed, in fact, and you just come in shuffled. Maybe you came in the hopes that Jesus would be here to heal you today. Maybe you came hoping that Jesus would lighten your load. Maybe you came today hoping that Jesus would show up and fix up the problem that's left you messed up inside. Maybe you came just hoping that Jesus would do something tremendous. But the reality for most of us is that we kind of just want to stay in the shadows of ambiguity. We don't want to be that transparent. If it's not obvious to everybody else, we'll just keep it quiet. I mean, if everybody else doesn't know how broken we are, we're certainly not going to tell people how broken we are. If you doubt me, all you have to do is ask somebody, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. Bunch of lying saints. I mean, if we saw each other the way Jesus knows us to be, we would have to agree with Christ that we are confused, we are hurting, we are frail, we are fragile, we are bent over, and we are shuffling in pain. If we were honest with ourselves, we would say, Jesus, you know what a state I'm in. One of the things I've realized is that as a pastor, I I do not know what everybody goes through, but I do know that everybody goes through something. A wise preacher once told me, whenever you stand up to preach, just go ahead and assume that you're speaking to hurting people. Just go ahead and assume that you're speaking to hurting people because it's been my observation It's even been my experience that when it comes to suffering, all of us live in one of three perspectives to it. Either we're approaching it and we don't even know it, or we might find ourselves smack dab in the middle of it, and it is painful. This woman had been in the midst of it for 18 long years, or some of us 
have just gotten out of it. But everybody in the house lives in one of three perspectives to suffering. This woman was right in the midst of it. She was in pain. It was evident. It was obvious. But she wanted to be incognito. She did not want others to know she was there. She slipped in the back. I don't know why she came. But Jesus calls her forward. Jesus calls her forward. He is preaching the gospel. Now he's going to use her as a gospel object lesson. He calls her forward. It takes her forever to get down the aisle. She's in so much pain. She's debilitated. She's crippled. She's shuffling down the sanctuary. And everybody with every step looking, pointing, laughing, snickering, wondering, what is Jesus going to do with her? She's so messed up. She's so broken. And it strikes me that this woman asked for nothing. She didn't ask for anything. We are not given the impression that she came to church to pursue a healing from Jesus. She's not necessarily like the woman who had the issue of blood for some 12 years. That woman risked it all, went out into public, risked contaminating others and Christ, thereby risking the prospect of being stoned on the spot. And this woman goes up in the crowd and she says, if I touch him by the hem of his garment, then I know I'll be healed. That woman pursued a healing from Jesus. Luke 13 does not tell us this woman pursued Jesus. She asked for nothing. She promised nothing. It's not like she demonstrated some great deal of faith and Jesus called her forward and said, hey guys, look, here's a great example of what your life needs to look like if you have faith in me. She demonstrates no faith. She's not like the would-be follower that we met just a few weeks ago who said, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. She doesn't make that declaration of allegiance. She, she asked for nothing. She promised nothing. Because Luke wants us to know this story is not about her. This story is about Jesus. This is a Jesus story. And what does it tell us about Jesus? It tells that Jesus has all authority and all ability. He has all authority over the enemy. And... He has the ability to free people from whatever binds them. That's who Jesus is. This is a Jesus story. It's about his ability, his authority over the enemy, and his ability to free people from whatever binds them. So he calls her forward. She doesn't even know why she's coming. But the rabbi called her forward. She has to go. She can't sit there in defiance, so she comes. She can't look Jesus in the eyes. She looks at him in the navel. I mean, she, she's hunched over. She can't see. She doesn't know what he's about to do. He places his hands of love upon her. He says, woman, be freed from your suffering. And Luke says, immediately. She stood straight up and she praised God. 
She knew that this was a mighty man of God. She knew that this man had done a miracle in her life. And she stood up and she praised Jehovah. She praised God. Now you would expect for the crowd to explode in praise, right? There was stunned silence. The synagogue ruler, the leader of the local synagogue, Luke says, was indignant. That word indignant means that he was greatly displeased. He was so angry. His mind raced back to Exodus chapter 20, the first giving of the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment says, you are to keep the Sabbath day holy. For there are six days that you must do all your work, but on the Sabbath day, not any work can be done. The synagogue ruler knew the acceptable interpretation of the Torah. you got to agree with me that it could really be kind of confusing for folks to know what is work and what's not work, what's acceptable on the Sabbath to do and what's unacceptable on the Sabbath to do. You may say something's work, I would not think is work at all. You may say something I would think would be work and you may not agree with me at all. So we've got to have some standard, right? That's what the rabbis said. So they codified the proper company interpretation of the Torah in a document called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, there were 39 classes of work which were forbidden to be done on the Sabbath. It really helped to clarify what could be done, what could not be done on the Sabbath and still be within the confines of their interpretation of acceptability before God. There are 39 classes of work. For example, uh, you could write no more than two letters on the Sabbath. You could write one letter, but you couldn't write two. Writing one letter, not considered work. Writing two letters, considered work. So on Mother's Day, you could write a letter to your mama, but you cannot write it to your mother-in-law. <laughs> so there are 39 classes of work. One of those classes of work said and stated that on the Sabbath, you could not put finishing touches on an object. I get, I get the notion. I understand. You're working on a project. You think you're going to be done in six days. But the six days come and go. There's still a little bit more work to do. You don't want it to bleed over into next week. And you would really like just to put the little finishing touches, just a little bit left to do on the project. But the rabbi said, ah, no, no, you can't do that. You cannot put finishing touches on an object on the Sabbath. You got to wait till the first day of the week. And maybe this synagogue ruler thought that Jesus was putting the finishing touches on this woman, thereby making it forbidden. Regardless, he does not deny the healing takes place. He just labels that as work, which would have been forbidden on the Sabbath. The synagogue ruler even quotes scripture. He says there are six days to do work. That's very biblical. In fact, that's lifted straight out of the Decalogue, which is right there in Exodus chapter 20. For the Lord himself says, there are six days to do all your work. He quotes God. That sounds very sanctified, doesn't it? Isn't that what we do when we want to make a point? When we want to bolster our own opinion, we reach back and we grab a scripture verse and we slap it on there and go, wah, see, I told you, the Bible says so. 
This synagogue ruler stood up and quoted scripture. He said, hey, there are six days to do work. And looking at the woman, he said, come on another day when you can be healed. You know what he's saying? You've been suffering for 18 long years. What's one more day? You're being so selfish. And once again, she said, I didn't ask for this. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want, I just wanted to stay in the back. He called me forward. Because this is not about the woman, it's about Jesus. And then Luke says, the Lord answered. Once again, he is communicating that this story is about the authority and the ability of Jesus because Jesus is Lord. This is not just a polite way to say, sir, this is to say he is Lord of the cosmos. Luke could have said, then Jesus replied, but he doesn't do that. Look at your text. He says, the Lord answered. The Lord, Jesus is Lord. He shows his authority over the enemy. He shows his ability to free people from whatever binds them. The Lord answered, you hypocrites. He answered the synagogue ruler. He talked to the entire crowd. You hypocrites. A hypocrite was an actor on a stage, masking around behind a mask. So that an actor could give off the image of being someone else, playing someone else, simply by dressing in the right costume and having a mask over his face. And Jesus lifts that word out of the theater and he plants it into the synagogue and he says, you are nothing more than an actor, a phony on a stage. You hypocrites. For don't all of you make exceptions to the rules? Jesus knows the Mishnah. He doesn't necessarily abide by it, but he knows it. He says, don't you have a donkey or an oxen? Don't you have a beast of burden that on the Sabbath you unbind, you untie, and you lead it to water? And all of them would have said, yeah, of course we do that. I mean, everybody does that. Everybody who has an animal, everybody, every farmer who's getting ready, they know they've got to have beasts of burden that are strong and able to do the work throughout the week. So absolutely, we lead our animals to water. What's your point? Jesus says, listen, I, I, I see the inconsistency of your interpretation of what's acceptable in the sight of God. The Mishnah said that um, if you had uh, oxen, if you had donkeys, you could untie them, you could lead them 2,000 cubits, which is equivalent to 3,000 feet. You could not go 3,001. You could go up to 3,000 feet to lead them to water, and that would not be work. And furthermore, you could not put anything on that beast of burden as if he is carrying a load, moving it from point A to point B. If you did that, then you would be skimping and you would be doing work and your beast of burden would be doing work and that was forbidden. Do you see how detailed the Mishnah was in describing what was acceptable in the sight of God? And Jesus says, you've missed it completely because you've made provisions for a thirsty animal, but you haven't made provisions for a hurting person. Do you hear how he called her? He said, here is a daughter of Abraham. He is the only one in the crowd who would have labeled her a daughter of Abraham. Nobody else would have. They would have labeled her as deformed, as a crippled, as trash, as useless, as getting what she deserves. They would not have said she is a worthy, valuable daughter of Abraham. Jesus says, yes, she is. She is valuable in the sight of God. 
One of the things I love about Jesus is that he always sees people through the lens of the gospel. We always see people through the grid that we have placed over our eyes. All of us have a lens. All of us have a grid. And this morning I wonder, how do you see people? Through what lens do you look through? Some people look through the lens of business. What I mean by that is that uh, you regard people as objects to help you turn a profit. That's looking at people through the eyes of business. It's looking at people through the bottom line. It's looking at people at what they can do to advance the cause of the agenda or the company. It's just looking at uh, people just as an object to turn a profit. Do you look at people through the lens of athletics? There's nothing wrong with business. There's nothing wrong with athletics. But do you look at people through the lens of athletics? Because in the lens of athletics, a person's value is always tied to his or her performance. So people are valuable because of how they perform. If they don't perform well, they are not valuable. This past Friday, um, I helped to lead a uh, small group Bible study of fifth grade boys. And we invited a former Major League Baseball player who has his children there at Briarwood. He came and he talked to the guys. And unbeknownst to him, I mean, he just kind of said, hey, listen, I was in a system for 18 years in the major leagues that if I didn't perform, I did not play. My value was tied to how well I did on the baseball diamond. And I thought to myself, that's exactly right. And he says, it's just the way it is. It's a business. That's how it is. And, we, and sometimes we look at people that way. You are valuable if you can't perform. If you don't perform at our level of standard, then we cut you. And that's how we deal with people too. So how do you look at people? Do you look at people through the lens of politics? That's a hot button topic today, isn't it? And when you look at people through the lens of politics, it's always us versus them. And the us versus them standard is based on how a person votes. Do you look at people through the lens of pornography? We, we live in a cultural grid where everything is bound by how a person looks and how they appear. And some people are so caught up that they look at other individuals through the lens of pornography, seeing people as objects who are created for their own personal pleasure. How do you look at people? Do you look at people just through the lens of personal success? If you look at people through the lens of personal success, all people are regarded as rungs on a ladder upon which you can step to advance your ultimate goal and outcome. How do you view people? Are there some people that are more important than others? Some people that are more valuable than others? Some people that are used for your own personal pleasure more than others? How do you view people? Jesus looked through the lens of the gospel. He said to this one who is marginalized, pushed aside, pushed aside shoved away, this is a daughter of, of Abraham. He always looked at people through the lens of the gospel. That lens of the gospel says that all people are valuable in the sight of God. They are stamped with intrinsic value, for they are fearfully and wonderfully made. They are created with the imago Dei, made in the very image of God. And God himself has stamped worth upon every single person that has ever lived. And every person is worthy to hear the gospel and to respond to it. So Jesus says to this woman what he says to all of us, you are a son of Abraham. You are 
or a daughter of Abraham. You have worth not dependent on your performance, not even dependent on your personality, but it's dependent upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says you're valuable in his sight and God don't make no junk. He argues from the lesser to the greater. He says, you've made provisions for a dumb, thirsty animal. You say it's okay to unbind a donkey, lead him 3,000 feet to a watering hole on the Sabbath. But you've got a hurting person, a person who's suffering, and you have no provision to help and to heal a suffering saint. Jesus says, why shouldn't she be healed on the Sabbath? Of all days, this is a perfect day for her to be set free. My friend, I'm about to close. And let me ask you this in closing. What binds you as you came shuffling into the sanctuary today? What are you bound by? Are you bound by guilt over your past? Today is a perfect day to be set free. Are you bound by a present problem? The problem could be physical. The problem could be emotional. The problem could be relational. The problem could be mental. Are you bound by a present crisis? Today is a perfect day to be set free. Are you bound by fear of the future? Today is a perfect day to be set free. Are you bound by a sin that so easily entangles you? Today is a perfect day to be set free. Are you bound by an addiction or an addictive behavior? Today is a perfect day to be set free. Are you bound by greed? Today is a perfect day to be set free. Are you bound by anger? Today is a perfect day to be set free. Are you bound by low self-esteem? Today is a perfect day to be set free. Are you bound by the devil's schemes? Today is a perfect day to be set free are you bound by despair are you bound by depression today is a perfect day to be set free somebody's about to get happy in the house we're about to have a holy ghost party going on right now because somebody knows they've come and they're shackled and they're suffering and they're shuffling and they're coming in and jesus calls us by name jesus tells us to come forward and jesus lays his hands upon us and says son daughter you are now free i wish you tell somebody if the son has set you free you are free indeed I love it when Jesus comes to church because Jesus does things that cannot be humanly explained I love when Jesus shows up. And I'm just convinced that there are people in this sanctuary listening to my voice, and you're bound for 18 long years. You're hunched over, broken and bruised, and you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders. My friend, Jesus says today is a perfect day 
to be set free. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. Lord, we pray that you will unloose and unbind those who have been bound by the adversary for far too long. Help us to see ourselves and see others through the lens of the gospel. Father, help us to respond accordingly. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you see the marginalized as worthy of your mercy. Lord, I give you this invitation. I pray that you move in such a mighty way, there's no way we can explain it in human words other than to say, to God be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.